us a little bit about you? Not much to tell. Um, <laughs> he's a Hoosier by birth. That ought to tell you something. Um, I'm not sure what. I would um, share just as we begin. Um, I'm always deeply honored when asked to preach outside my uh, pastoral duties. Um, you folks actually ask me willingly uh, to to come. Uh, that's that's amazing. Uh, perhaps unknowingly, but at least you're willing. Um, uh, but uh, bless your hearts. But uh, my my folks back in in Meeker, uh, they've had to listen to me for 27 years, and and uh, boy, that's almost a death sentence, don't you think? Uh, but you've been here, Pastor, been here longer, so that that's that makes me feel better. I also appreciated, by the way, the picture that um, you used in the uh, flyer. Um, what are you laughing at? Um, <laughs> Uh, I appreciate it. That was only taken just a few months ago, okay, <laughs> maybe 120 months ago, but, uh, just, but I, I appreciate that. that uh, I don't think I've aged well. But anyway, um, this, I, I, I'm very encouraged by just the opportunity to, to uh, meet with you. Uh, on the one hand, though, uh, this has been a, a difficult conference to prepare for because of um, the material that I want to share with you folks. Um, over the years, um, I, as, I sh- as Pastor shared just a moment ago, I spent three and a half years in, in Ephesians. Ephesians is kind of a passion of mine. It has been for a long time. And um, I, I, I spent uh, 21 messages in just marriage and the family alone there in uh, 518 through 64. So to try to distill all that down and be very choosy of the material that I was able to share with you in just five messages... Uh, but I pray that it will be a blessing and encouragement to you uh, just to, to hit some of these most important principles. I begin this, this evening, as the story goes, there was a certain little girl, seven-year-old girl who had just seen the movie Cinderella. And uh, she wanted to test her neighbor lady's um, uh, knowledge of the story. And the neighbor, anxious to impress the little girl, she says, well, I know how the story ends. And the little seven-year-old said, yeah, how, how's it en- how does it end? And uh, the lady said, Cinderella and the prince live happily ever after. And the cynically, the little cynical seven-year-old said, no, they didn't. They got married. <laughs> and that, of course, brings a chuckle to us, but in a way, it is sadly true that we find that such a marriage will inevitably uh, affect the entire family. And it will make for a problem-filled home and troubled children. And the reason is because that marriage is not based upon the Word of God. Now, my friends, I, I cannot emphasize that strongly enough. And that is that if we want a home that is biblical and one that God will bless, we must base it upon Scripture alone. That particular principle has been a passion of mine for a lot of years. I have uh, written and preached on the issues of the five solas of the Reformation. And at the very foundations of that was, of course, sola scriptura. I'm sure that your pastor has shared that with you before. That was the formal principle of the Reformation. And by a formal principle, that means the principle on which the entire movement is founded. And out of sola scriptura came the other of the five solas. The Word of God must be our foundation in our homes. And tragically, much of what is taught today concerning the home and the family comes basically from the world. Frankly, many Christian books today are, are, are either completely topical or their approach is not expositional or that they are clouded by the world's philosophies or all of the above. They are not based upon Scripture alone. Now, I don't want to be overcritical, but I do want to share with you that it is unfortunate that most of the books are clouded with secular psychology and humanistic philosophy. Instead of simply dealing with what God says in his word about the home, 
the roles of husbands, wives, children, and parents. Such books just basically take Freudianism or Rogerianism or some other aspect of psychobabble and put a few verses with it and call it Christian counseling. And that is not foundational at all to Christian counseling. Our goal, therefore, in just the short times that I, that I have to share with you is to be thoroughly biblical in our study. I promise you, folks, I'm not going to give you anything else but the Word of God. I think that's why you invited me. I want to share the Word of God. That leads us right to one more introductory thought. Would you please take your Bibles? Yes, we're going to use that this evening. Ephesians 5.18 for just a few minutes. I know you know this verse. Ephesians 5.18, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I'm convinced that it's no accident that this verse begins the context of the Christian home. Now, some Bible teachers that I have seen in many years of ministry, they begin their study of the Christian home down in verse 22. I'm sure, ladies, you can quote that one, right? They begin there, that well-known verse on wives, submit yourselves to your own husband. But that, I believe, is a serious mistake not only because it is not only doctrinally, uh, uh, it is not only, um, it's not a doctrinal exposition, but in practical application, I believe it's a serious mistake. By, begin, by not beginning in verse 18 and beginning in verse 22, all you're basically going to get is rebellious wives. The context begins, this teaching begins in verse 18. This verse lays the foundation that each and every family member must be spirit-filled and then see the roles of specific family members. The same principle is true when we are dealing with the authority of Scripture. If we don't start there, we're wasting our time. We must begin with this foundational principle of spirit-filling. I want to take just a few moments this evening to deal with this verse. Originally, when I was preaching here, and as I have put it in the book, I've spent a lot more time in dealing with spirit-filling aspects and, and so forth of that and the results of it and so forth. But folks, I want to touch on this. There is, of course, much confusion about spirit-filling. Boy, is there ever. But basically, it is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is not the sealing of the Holy Spirit. All of these are biblical doctrines, but neither is it speaking in so-called tongues. It is not some rapturous vision and new revelations from God. So what is spirit-filling? I want you to notice, first of all, in this text, why compare drunkenness with spirit-filling? That's an amazing contrast, don't you think? It's an amazing contrast. One commentator puts it this way, quote, both wine and the Spirit do their work deep in the human psyche. They affect people below the level of consciousness, down at the foundations of personality. The Spirit is not merely with God's people, but in them. The meaning of the present text is, let all the church therefore cooperate with the Spirit who lives down deep in their hearts, so they will spontaneously overflow with orderly and joyous worship of God, unquote. That's why there's the difference. Let me put the, the contrast this way. While the drunk is stupid and without any control, the spirit-filled believer is sensible and always in control. That's the basic idea. To be filled with the Spirit is not to lose control and be mindless, as a growing number of teachers in our day believe and teach. Wish we had time to go there for about an hour. <laughs> but rather, Paul uses this marvelous word, filled. Wonderful word in the Greek New Testament. It is the Greek plerao, which speaks of it filling a container to its fullest. It speaks of, it was originally used of ships being filled with sailors and rowers and soldiers as a means to influence fully and to control. One Greek authority puts it this way, 
to fill up, to cause to abound, to furnish or supply liberally, to flood, to abound, to diffuse throughout. That's spirit filling. It's used, for example, in Matthew 13, 48 to refer to a full fishing net, filled to overflowing. So the chief idea in this is to be permeated with and controlled by the Holy Spirit. It is used, for example, to, of the first deacons there in Acts chapter 6, that the men of honest report who were full, play race is the word, of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. It is also used of Stephen who was full of the Holy Spirit in Acts 7.55. Filled with the Holy Spirit as he was stoned to death. One other thing I want you to note with me is an extremely critical aspect of this. There is an astounding parallel of spirit filling in the sister book of Ephesians and that of course is Colossians. In Colossians 3.16 we read there, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now what I want you to notice with me is notice the effect of the word of God dwelling richly in the soul. When you then turn back to our Ephesians passage, we get the exact same results when we are filled with the Spirit as we are when the Word of God dwells in us. Do you see? The same results. What's the correlation? Harry Ironside put it this way. Wonderful statement in putting those two texts together in proper perspective. Ironside said this, quote, it should be clear that the Word-filled Christian is the spirit filled Christian. As the word of Christ dwells in us richly, controls all our ways as we walk in obedience to the word, the spirit of God fills us, dominates, controls to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, there are, again, there's so much confusion about the spirit. I can't tell you how much confusion there really is. I know your pastor has shared some of this with you. I'm preparing lectures to, to teach at the Haiti Bible Institute this fall, and I just got through tracing some of the movements in our day in contemporary theology where the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is completely skewed, and uh, false teaching is everywhere. It's not that complicated. There is a wondrous parallel between spirit-filling and word-filling. Folks, if you want to be controlled by the Spirit of God, open your Bibles and be controlled by the Word of God. That is the center of the Christian life. That is Spirit-filling. When the Word of God permeates us, the Spirit of God controls us. If we therefore want godly marriages and families, we will be Spirit-filled and Word-filled. So folks, I want to encourage you this evening we may be frank for just a moment, if we do not begin there, the rest of this conference will be a waste of time. We must begin with this principle. With that in mind, I'd like to share with you three, uh, three general principles this evening. All that was just introduction. I want to share three principles with you. First of all, the first two are really more of the extended introduction. We'll get to what I really want to share with you in a few minutes. Ponder, first of all, the meaning of marriage, then the motives of marriage, and then we'll look at the model of marriage. Ponder first the meaning of marriage. Oh, didn't the Supreme Court just tell us what the meaning of marriage was the other day? Well, let's look biblically, shall we? There are many false concepts of what marriage actually is, but simply stated, God's word speaks of marriage as the covenant of companionship. I can't think of a more beautiful picture of what God has created. Let me for just a few moments explain this wonderful principle. In Genesis 2.18, it declares, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. 
Folks, right from the very beginning, God says the single life is not good. Now, yes, there are rare occasions. But the general principle is that single life is not good. Adam was lonely in the garden, so God created him the perfect companion. Folks, the general principle is single is not satisfactory. Genesis chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 goes on to declare, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him, male and female, created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam. In the day when they were created. Did you notice what it says? Notice that God called them, not just him, but them, Adam. In fact, from the very beginning, the woman was a covenanted companion with her husband to the point that even taking his name. Now, while some women today resent this practice and keep their maiden name or they, you know, do the hyphen thing, right? Even though they do that, they apparently miss the fact that their maiden name is also a man's name. It's not only silly, but it's rebellion against God's design. Silliness. Foolishness. This is, in fact, further seen by what name Adam gave Eve. Ladies, you're going to love this. It's a wonderful principle. Wonderful truth. As Adam was naming all the animals, he did not name them without meaning. In our Western culture, names don't mean a whole lot, but they did in the ancient world, in the Semitic languages. And in fact, we find that Adam actually gave her two names. We find first the name was woman in Genesis 2.23, which is the Hebrew Isha. And on occasion, I've got actually four or five little pet names for my wife. Um, some of them she appreciates. Um, but Isha is one of them that she likes. Isha. And indeed, which Adam then defines as taken out of man. What is man? Ish. So Isha is taken out of man. The second name that he gave her was Eve, which should bless our heart, bless the heart of every woman here. It is the Hebrew Shiva. And it again Adam defines it the mother of all living. What a truth this is. Every wife is both an Isha, who is dependent on a man for her living, but she is also Shiva, on whom every man is dependent for his life. That sounds better than evolution, doesn't it? What God has designed is a glorious thing. Anybody ever see the movie The Lion King? You don't have to be ashamed if you did, okay? That's okay. You remember the song, The Circle of Life? I don't think they knew half the story. This is what we see, the real circle of life. While the woman was taken from the man and is dependent upon him, every man is likewise dependent upon a woman for his very life. What a picture. And God did that and continues to do all this through one institution. It's called marriage. And regardless of what the Supreme Court has said, that is a union between one man and one woman. That's what God has designed. How big of a fool do you have to be not to recognize that foundation of society itself? Folks, therefore, the essence of marriage is companionship. Let me define it for you this way, very clearly, very simply. Marriage is a formal covenant, and of course that means agreement or promise, between a man and a woman to become each other's loving companion for life. That's marriage. Malachi chapter 2, verse 14 is the key verse. 
and that is the prophet addresses Jewish men with the words, she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. In light of the rampant divorce in our nation, or in, in the Hebrew nation, which certainly sounds familiar to us, right? In light of the rampant divorce, the context speaks of the seriousness and devastation of divorce. That is, breaking that covenant, breaking that commitment, breaking that promise to one another. Therefore, what is a companion? A companion is one with whom we are united in our goals, our values, our affections, and in the case of marriage, even our bodies. So when the covenant of companionship is made, each partner promises to love the other with a, an agape love. We'll examine that on another evening. To love each other with a self-sacrificial love. To take away each other's loneliness, to meet each other's needs physically, honor and faithful to one another, bear children as God dictates and as God provides. The world talks about a soulmate, right? But in light of what God has created, the soulmate idea is a mud puddle to what God has designed in the covenant of companionship. Ponder briefly, secondly, with me this evening the motives for marriage. Again, I, I need to be brief, but I do want to mention this principle. There are at least four specific motives for marriage that we find revealed in Scripture. First, we've looked at already a little bit to provide companionship, to meet needs. Now, personally, I, I sure identified with a sign uh, in a wallpaper paint store. The sign in that little store read, Husbands choosing colors must have note from wives. <laughs> yep. If it's not blue, I couldn't care less. Okay? And that's just one thing. I mean, I am dressed this evening. You will see I'm coordinated and everything. I had nothing to do with it. I mean, I put the stuff on, but I didn't pick it out. And that's just one thing. If it weren't for her knowledge, uh, well, we won't even go there. And that's just one area. She's a helper. She is the one who, when I'm helpless, she is helpful in many, many ways. Folks, as I pondered this one day, some time ago, the perfect balanced principle became clear. And that is, please get this, folks, while I need her help, she needs to help. That's what God's designed. Boy, you say that in front of some women today, and they want to tar and feather you or worse, right? But that's what God designed. And we are going out of our ways to try to deny that in some way skew it into some other philosophy. And so therefore, when we understand that principle, when we, relate, we are related to our spouse as God has designed, our marriages will be transformed. So first, motive for marriage is that of to provide companionship. A second motive is to provide sexual protection. The key passage here in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 and 3, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, that is, any sexual perversion, the Greek there, porneia, means any kind, doesn't matter what it is, any kind of sexual relationship outside marriage. It comes from the root pornos uh, uh, that originally, literally meant prostitute. So it's a very broad word, all-encompassing. So to avoid that, let every man have his own wife, let every woman have her own husband, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. God's design and beautiful balance is to prevent sexual sin. We get married and have a physical relationship that is mutually beneficial for both. That's what God has designed. Third motive that we find in Scripture for marriage, and that is to provide the means of raising godly children. A means of raising godly children. Now, procreation is not marriage, but it certainly is a part of marriage. And it is a godly marriage that will provide godly children. The key verse here is comprised of two verses that follow Malachi's statements about marriage, uh, his statement about marriage covenant. In Malachi 2, the next two verses, 15 and 16. 
and did not he make them one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed? Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, said that he hateth putting away, that is, hated divorce. It's for a godly seed. It's to bring about godly children, to teach them, to train them, to discipline them, as we'll see later on in our conference. And I want to deal very specifically on one night with children, so you children be here, right? And another night with the parents, and parents, you most certainly better be here. So as noted earlier, the Jews were plagued by divorce. So Malachi emphasizes the oneness of God's design. And an essential reason for marriage is raising and training the next generation of godly people. Folks, would you say amen with me this evening if you think we need godly people in our day? Look where the church is headed. Look at what is going on in the church today. Look at our culture and how the culture is beginning to take over every aspect of the church. We're the ones that are supposed to be the lights shining into a crooked and perverse generation. But this generation is the one who is now dictating to the church. Folks, there's a fourth motive for marriage, and that is to provide the foundational element of human society. That is what the Supreme Court now I mean, we didn't think they could get worse than Roe v. Wade, right, back in 73? We didn't think it could get worse. As I'm going to share with you in, an, in, an, in our next message is how much, how violent the attack on, on marriage and the family has always been. Started in the book of Genesis. Goes into our modern day. Satan hates the family because the family is the very foundation of the church, which is supposed to be the foundation of what? Our country. Destroy the family. That's at the root. He challenged that with a couple named Adam and Eve, didn't he? He challenged that immediately, and we'll look at that in another evening as well. Marriage is not something that man devised as a clever way to sort out the responsibilities of men, women, and children. God designed it to be the one foundational element of human society. And as we said, our culture is working overtime to destroy that. Folks, would you share, I'd like to share one more principle with you this evening. And that's what I've been leading up to. And that is the model for marriage. Would you please turn with me to Song of Solomon. This is what I've really been leading up to, and I wanted to just share these other thoughts with you. As I said from the pulpit the morning I first shared what I'm about to share with you folks back in 2005, I had for weeks been looking forward to presenting this very material. I spent several weeks on this, putting things together. And how blessed of heart I was when I finished this study. I don't believe there's any better introduction really to the passage in Ephesians than the Song of Solomon. It provides us with a biblical model for marriage. As we'll emphasize as we go on, it is a perfect model. Now, it's not a perfect marriage, okay? We'll see it's not a perfect marriage. The little foxes get in. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. It's not a perfect marriage, but it's a perfect model. This is a wonderful picture of marriage. While the marriage was an excellent one, a problem still arose to show that it's realistic. So would you ponder with me, the title of Song of Solomon that appears in several English translations comes from verse 1 the very first verse, it states that the book was written by Solomon. Ancient Hebrew versions, however, call it Song of Songs. 
Now, what does that mean? This title translates the superlative in the Hebrew, another example of the Hebrew superlative. There's actually more than one. But other example is holy of holies in Exodus 26. So therefore, in other words, the 1,005 songs that Solomon wrote, of all of that, this is the song. This is the best. This is his, if what we say in our modern day in Latin, magnum opus, his greatest work, this is it. Folks, I want to share with you this evening that Solomon's song, this song of songs, is a love story. It is a love story, and what a story it is. You know, every once in a while, a writer will pen a good love story, and once in a while, once in a great while, a movie is made that tells a pretty good love story instead of the typical lust story. But here is a real love story. Now, fellas, I'm probably going to embarrass you this evening because you're going to think, oh, this is just gooey and gushy stuff. See, out where I live now that I've ministered in 27 years out west, everybody's macho, okay? Well, I want to share with you this evening, that's a bunch of foolishness. This is a real love story. Absolutely pure love story. Once again, while it's not perfect, it's the perfect model. And in light of the perversion of love and marriage in our day, Hebrews 13.4 captures the heart of this love story. Marriage is honorable in all things and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. As this story then goes on to underscore the physical relationship between husband and wife is, as that Greek word behind undefiled indicates unpolluted, unstained, and unsoiled by sin. It's God's design. Let me introduce it to you. The two principal characters in the love story are, of course, Solomon. He is referred to as the beloved 32 times in our authorized version, and also the Shulamite maiden. Now, it's been a, a a debate of exactly who this gal was. There are some possibilities that stand out. One is that she was an unknown maiden from Shulam. And that is that uh, the problem with that, I think, is that there's only mention of Shulam in the Bible uh, in extra-biblical literature. Not likely. Other interpreters say that it is simply another name for Shulam, which was located in Lower Galilee, but that's also conjectural. The third possibility, I think, is what makes sense. Ponder this a moment. In the Hebrew, Shulamite is actually the feminine form, Shulamith, of the masculine Solomon, Shalom. As scholar Augustus Strong points out, because the definite article is present, the term is a pet name. It's a pet name. In other words, having become Solomon's wife, she took his name, which was a common practice then as it is now. And therefore, as we noted in Genesis 5-2, as God said, their name was Adam, not just his. Beloved, this underscores that they're going as husband and wife to be one. Also, Song of Solomon has been variously interpreted. There are those who say that it, uh, it's allegorical or it's just typological. But both of those obviously do not actually deal with this literally. In one way or another, they actually make the text and the characters say something that is not stated in the text. The most common idea is that the whole story depicts God's love either for Israel or the church. But let me just throw this out to you. I don't think it possibly can be the church. It cannot be in view because the church was a mystery in the Old Testament economy, hidden from the foundation of the world, not revealed into the New Testament apostles and prophets. Even more basic than that, however, nowhere in the book is God's love the subject, ever. Rather, the love of a man and a woman. I should also interject that such spiritualizing has caused some writers to refer to Christ as the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley, chapter 2, verse 1. 
But that's not so. We find, in fact, as we'll see, that the Shulamite maiden used both terms, not of the Messiah, but of herself. Considering herself nothing but just those common flowers. But then what's so beautiful is Solomon disagreed in the next verse by saying that she was not just any lily, but the lily among thorns, right? Folks, this is a love story. Spiritualizing Solomon's song, we totally miss the literal, deep, vitally important principle that this is a love story. There's no justification whatsoever for viewing the book in any other way than take it at face value in its natural, normal, literal fashion. When we do, this is exciting, when we do, we see its three main sections. We see first Solomon's days of courtship, chapter 1, verse 2, through chapter 3, verse 5. His wedding and early days of his marriage in 3, 6 through 5, 1. And then the growth and maturing of that marriage in 5, 2 through 8, 4. Now perhaps some of you are wondering how Solomon could have been the author of this song when he indulged in the forbidden pagan practice of polygamy. I mean, think of that, fellas. He only had 700 wives, right? On top of that, 300 concubines. Undoubtedly, the answer is that this was his first marriage. We read in Ecclesiastes 9.9, Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of your life. Why is Solomon's song part of Scripture? Why put a love story in the Bible? After all, the Bible's about spiritual truth. Why put in something so earthly as marriage? I think one commentator well sums up the purpose of this wonderful book. He writes, quote, The purpose of the book is to extol human love and marriage. Though at first this seems strange, on reflection, it is not surprising for God to have included in the biblical canon a book endorsing the beauty and purity of marital love. God created man and woman and established and sanctioned marriage. Since the world views sex so sordidly and perverts and exploits it so persistently, and since so many marriages are crumbling because of lack of love, commitment, and devotion, it is advantageous to have a book in the Bible that gives us endorsement of marital love as wholesome and pure, unquote. Amen. That'd be a good place for an amen, by the way. Absolutely. If marriage is the very foundation of society, the foundation of living, the foundation of having children, the foundation of human relationships, doesn't it make sense that the Bible would very specifically address that foundational principle? If Scripture is authoritative and solely sufficient, and I've devoted much of my own ministry to that very foundational principle, and if it is both of those, would not the subject of marital love be treated as a practical, straightforward, and in fact even graphic manner as it is in Solomon's song? Folks, I'd like to just take a brief look at the whole book. I'll have you out by 1 o'clock. How's that? Oh, whoa, don't say that unless you mean it. I want to take a look at this as a model for our marriages. What a story. In the opening words of the song in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it's actually the physical side of love that is mentioned first. That's mentioned first, which seems to conflict, right, with the common view that says in our day, the physical doesn't matter at all in choosing a mate. Okay, let me take a poll. Fellas, I bet when you looked at her, you thought, eh, physical really doesn't matter. Is there any one of you in, here, in this room that would say that? Of course the physical matters. But we are told, and we've been told, well, the physical doesn't matter. Of course it does. Now, do we base a marriage on that? Of course not. But that is indeed something that matters. 
The maiden, in fact, speaks of her desire for the beloved's physical affection and lists the physical features that attracted her to him in the first place. You see, the desire for physical intimacy is absolutely clear from the beginning. It is a basic human need in both male and female. Yes, while the marriage must be based on much more than that, or it will fail miserably, such desire is not only allowed, but is considered good and healthy. We then see in verses 5 through 8, the maiden speaks of herself as being black. Interesting word here in the Hebrew. It refers to skin that is swarthy, darkened in the context because of the sun's rays. In other words, she therefore feels that the sun has marred her complexion because she works outdoors all the time. In contrast to the ladies of the palace, she is darker skinned. But here is, in fact, a key to this young lady's character. She's not afraid to work. You know, I want to encourage you parents, train your children. Moms, train your daughters. I can't tell you how many girls I have seen in the last several years, and I've been conscious of this because our son just picked one and will be married in the fall. But how many girls today don't know anything about domestics? They're not being taught. They're not being trained. What are they being told? Oh, well, you can have the whole thing. You can do whatever you want and have this and have that. That's not God's design. never was. And we'll go into some more depth on that as we progress. She's not afraid to work in a domestic way. That's, that's almost a fate worse than death is what the feminists tell us today. But this is what God has designed. She's not afraid to work. Nonetheless, in her insecurity, she needs the beloved's reassurance. I want you to notice another key to this young lady's character are the words, Why should I be as one that turneth aside? Verse 7. That can also be literally rendered for why am I as one veiled? And the background of that is in Genesis 38, 14 through 16. This girl, unlike Tamar, values purity and rejects the veil or any appearance of the veil of the wandering prostitute. So important, in fact, is propriety that she insists on specifying a particular place and time for them to meet. We then read Solomon's reassurance in verses 9 through 11. He calls her my love nine times, starting in verse 9, then in 115, 22, 210, 213, 41, and 7, 52, and 64. My love. Now, notice what else he says. Ladies, you're going to love this. He compares her to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots, right? Now, how many of you girls want to hear that one? Well, where I live, that wouldn't be a problem. Out west, the girls love those ponies. Go ahead. Why? Because of their grace, their majesty. And to call her like a bunch of horses, oh, she'd eat that up. So therefore, indeed, also she's being poor. She doesn't have jewelry, but he compliments her further and says her cheeks are comely with rows of jewels and her neck with chains of gold. In this syrupy stuff? In other words, you don't need jewelry. You're already adorned with natural gems. Husbands, when was the last time you complimented your wife? I remember something I read several years ago. Billy Sunday is quoted as saying, Try praising your wife, even if it frightens her at first. Right? Right? Verses 12 through 14, the maiden speaks of the smell of her perfume that will reach the king as he sits on the throne. Scent, in fact, plays a very important role in physical attraction. She also pictures in her mind the intimacy when they are allowed to sleep together for the first time. In verse 15, we see the couple looking into each other's eyes and talking, a key to intimacy. The king compliments her eyes, calling them doves' eyes, as doves are known for their tranquility and their purity. 
Verses 16 and 17 reveal that they are lying beside each other on the grass as the forest surrounds them. What a romantic setting. Preacher, do you mean to tell me that the Bible actually talks about romance? Indeed it does. Turning to chapter 2 and verse 1, as mentioned earlier, the maiden thinks of herself only as common flowers, a rose and a lily. Isn't that quite a contrast to today's vanity? And may I dare say something else, the immodesty that is so common even among Christians today? Now, I don't want to get myself in trouble here, but it is sad indeed. But here was a young lady that was very concerned that she not appear vain or in any way immodest. Then in verse 2, as far as he is concerned, the king views all other women as thorns and her, of course, as that lily among them. Then staying with that nature metaphor, in verses 3 through 6, she likens him to the apple tree. Now there's an odd one. Guys, how would you like it if your wife said, you know, you remind me of an apple tree. Well, but... He liked that metaphor. It was very graphic because the three aspects of love are illustrated by that metaphor. First, she says, I sat down under his shadow with great delight. There is a picture of protection. In contrast to her working in the brutal sun, in him she found rest. Second, she says, his fruit was sweet to my taste, which pictures provision. At the very foundation of a marriage is the husband providing for his wife's needs, and she is totally secure in that provision. Thirdly, then she says, he brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. I love this picture. That pictures proclamation. And the picture here, folks, is he took her to the banquet hall to show her off. Right? Fellas, you've never done that in your whole lives, have you? Never showed her off to anybody. Of course you did. How much do you do that now? To show her off. In essence, he put a banner over her proclaiming that he was not ashamed or embarrassed to proclaim his love for this girl. Again, today's macho philosophy that says that men are weak if they show affection. Folks, if I may be frank, that's not only in biblical, but it's pretty stupid. It really is. She was so taken by his affection and his demonstration of his affection that she was lovesick. A common theme in Near Eastern poetry. She was in fact so weakened that she needed both physical strength from food, notice the term flagons, that is raisins and apples, and also emotional strength from his intimate embrace. Fellas, I want to just encourage all of us as husbands, I encourage us that our wives thrive on intimacy. They thrive on that. Therefore, in light of the emphasis on physical attraction that we have seen, verse 7 provides an essential control. Here's the balance. Very important balance in verse 7. I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose, and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love, till he please. It's not certain exactly who the daughters of Jerusalem were, but some views include ladies of the royal court, perhaps concubines in the royal harem, not likely, or all the female inhabitants of Jerusalem. Whichever one it was, the point here is a warning of arousal, uncontrolled passion before the right time. Marital and premarital chastity are elsewhere encouraged in Solomon's song. We find it in chapter 4, verse 12, chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. And if I may encourage all you young ladies here, the most important thing that you can do to prepare for a future marriage is to stay pure. Now, Pastor, I didn't hear you mention the guys. Same thing. There's no double standard with God. In Proverbs 5 through 7, Solomon writes of what immorality will do to a young man. And you better read it 
often as a reminder. In chapter 6, verses 32 and 33, we, we read, Whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He that doeth it destroys his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. Again, there's no double standard in God's law. Both young ladies and young men should stay pure and wait for God's sanction for that intimacy. Young people, I want to share this one thought with you. I promise you, it will be worth the wait. Okay? It will be worth the wait. We then read in verses 8 through 14, the maiden describes Solomon as a roe or young heart. That means a gazelle or a deer as he approaches close to her. He's attractive, strong, and agile. He's moving quickly because he can't wait to see her. Guys, you remember those days? Couldn't wait to see that girl? I can. And indeed, it's springtime, and they go for a walk. Everything that they see, the flowers, the birds, the trees, the vines, everything they see stimulates the senses and reminds them of the beauty of the love that they have for each other. Verses 14 and 15 then are special. O my dove, thou art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the, of the stairs. Let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. For sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. What beautiful poetry this is. And in fact, doves hide in the clefts of the hills to avoid detection. So Solomon's request is this, that she come out and show her entire self to him and hold nothing back. He is saying, I want to know you. I want to know everything about you. Don't hide in the clefts of the rock. Trust me, I want to know you. Solomon also, as we read a moment ago, mentions foxes, which is extremely important to the rest of the story. Foxes in Scripture are always a sign of trouble. So anything that would spoil their relationship should be dealt with, brought out into the open, and addressed. So how important it is that the doves and foxes are in our relationship and how we deal with them. How vital it is that couples receive adequate premarital counsel. Folks, I've been in the, in the ministry almost 40 years, and I have done very few, very few marriages. My phone rings, and someone says, well, um, this is so-and-so, and we, my fiancé and I, we, we are looking for someone to marry us. I say usually, well, that's fine, great. Uh, I would like to talk to both of you, an initial interview, and then we will spend a minimum of six weeks in premarital counsel. And by this time, if they're still on the phone... They say, well, thank you, we'll, we'll look someplace else. I'm not going to sanction something that's not based upon the Word of God, something that is committed to Christ as the center of that marriage because it's not going to last anyway. So, folks, indeed, everything is f founded on that principle. So, therefore, premarital counsel is absolutely essential. I appreciate very much the, the pastor where my son attends. He had the same view. We chatted about this, and I trust him implicitly. I am going to perform the ceremony, but I am doing something I've never done before. I'm relying on someone else to give them that counsel, but I trust him. How desperately that is needed in our day. Verses 16 and 17 declare the very foundation of marriage, that each owns the other. What a picture this is. My beloved is mine, and I am his. We see the same principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, of course. They look forward to marriage when they can embrace until the day breaks. When we turn to chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, the wedding is approaching and the maiden has a dream brought on by fear of losing her beloved. She looks everywhere, finally seeks him, takes him to his, her mother's house, which is the most secure place that she knows. Verse 5 ends the courting section with another reminder against the arousal of uncontrolled sexual passion before the right time. The wedding is almost here. Verses 6 through 11 describe the wedding procession 
which customarily was led by the groom to the bride's home when he then took her to their new home. There was a wedding feast that lasted about a week, sometimes longer. While the feast continued, however, the couple spend their first night together on their wedding night. We read the details of the wedding night in chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 1. Folks, up to now, Solomon's physical desire has been delicately phrased. But now he gets explicit. It's totally appropriate for a married couple. I'll leave you to read it and explore that later. But basically, the high points is a thorough description of her body in verses 1 through 7. Tells her that she has ravished, that is, stolen his heart in verse 9. Calls her sister in a very affectionate term that was used in Near Eastern poetry in verse 10. Praises her for her virginity, a closed garden and sealed fountain in verses 12 through 14. And then enjoys her, and to use his own delicate term, enjoys her as a garden in verse 16 and chapter 5, verse 1. What a picture. Folks, God, God made this. God has created this. He has created that for his children. He has created it for his glory. She then reciprocates in verse 11 and enjoys him as well. Chapter 5, verse 2, going through the rest of the book, we see the maturing of this marriage. At first, however, we see a problem in verses 2 through 16. While intimacy, joy, and physical desire do not fade between the couple, the little foxes that were mentioned back in chapter 2, verse 15, silently crept in. Some interpreters uh, interpret this and view this as a dream. I think it's quite literal. In either case, it is dramatic and teaches a deep, important principle. What we read here is that Solomon... It's late coming home, which is a challenge to husbands. Don't do that. It can be avoided. And is looking forward to being with his wife. She, however, is already in bed, groggily answers, in effect, I just don't really want to get up again. We see, therefore, that he is late and she is indifferent. Folks, here is a challenge to every couple to take great care not to drift apart. Don't take each other for granted. Something so easy to do. Solomon doesn't give up yet. He tries the door first, but when it doesn't open, he then surrenders. Finally realizing what she's done, she flies out of bed, opens the door, but he is gone. She even sell, smells the scent of his uh, um, on the door handle and is in total despair. She runs through the streets looking for him but can't find him. Finally, she asks the women of Jerusalem to help her look for him and try to help find him because of how lovesick and miserable she is. They answer, in effect, what is so special about him and why are you so miserable? What makes him so different than any other man? That takes her back to her days of courting and what she saw in him originally and ends with the words, this is my beloved and this is my friend. That's why he's different, because he's mine. He is my friend. He is the one I'm committed to, the one I'm devoted to. So the ladies ask, okay, where shall we look? Chapter 6 then opens in verses 1 through 3, knowing that the way she does, it finally hits her. He's gone to his garden. She goes to him, and they are reconciled. And then in verses 4 through 10 are from his perspective. There's no bitterness. There's total forgiveness. He praises her, makes it clear that his love has not diminished since the first night together. Verses 11 through 13 are then from her perspective. She's exhilarated to know that their love is still flourishing. She has no doubt that he loves her because he puts her in a chariot and makes a public display of their reconciliation in verse 12. See, nowadays we would do that in, out where I live, it'd be a pickup truck, okay? Uh, but you guys probably a muscle car, I suppose, right? The women of the palace call to her as the chariot races by and they see the joy on their faces. The opening verses of chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, record Solomon's even more intimate description of his wife than the one on the wedding night, starting with her feet and going up from there. This demonstrates that physical intimacy between husband and wife is God-given. Verse 6, in fact, declares that it was for our enjoyment, how fair and how pleasant art thou, O love, for delights. Verse 10, she 
responds passionately, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. She goes on, actually takes the initiative in verses 11 through 13 by suggesting they go into the countryside to be together. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, we see the desire for even greater intimacy. Now, while this sounds odd to, the Eastern, to our Western ears, in the ancient Near East, public displays of affection were frowned upon, except among family members. So what's so cute, if you will, about this scene is she playfully wishes that he were her younger brother so she could kiss him anytime she wanted to. What a picture. In verse 3, once again, we see joyfully they're anticipating their next time together. As the story nears its conclusion, we read of the nature of true love in verses 5 through 7. Folks, let me give you this real quick. First, true love is a seal. A seal is a symbol of ownership, and she wants it to be clear that she belongs to nobody else. While such a thought is repugnant to the feminist of our day, it is a foundational desire of the godly woman. We see, secondly, true love is strong, as strong as death, in fact, because both are irresistible. Third, true love is singular. She knew how harmful jealousy is and hoped that he never gave her reason to be jealous by looking at any other woman. Fourth, true love is stirring. It is passionate, it coals of fire and vehement flame. Fifthly, true love is supreme. As verse 7 concludes, many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it, for a man would give all the substance of his house for love. It would be utterly despised. Nothing can quench true love, and folks, nothing is more valuable. I want to encourage all of us this evening, are these principles true in our marriages? It's a seal. It is strong. It is singular. It is stirring. It is supreme. Is that true of us? The closing verses 8 through 14 are a reminiscence of how it all began. Folks, how many of you, how many of you married couples reminisce? Let me see your hands. Reminisce? We do it all the time. We've been married some 39 years now getting close to 40. My wife, her name is Debbie Deborah, and it's even spelled right, the biblical spelling. And one of us will say, do you remember when? And how many of you, I know you all do this, you parents, uh, you know, you probably didn't have a life before your children were born, and then after they were born, you gauge all time, you measure all time by the kids, don't you? You know, well, Paul, let's see, Paul was three then. Uh, let's see. That's the way we do it. But indeed, reminiscing, it's a wonderful thing to do. And therefore, likewise, this wife remembers her brothers protecting her when she was a little girl, encouraging her to stay pure. She could either be a wall, wonderful imagery, that would resist all men who wanted her only for sex, or she could be a door that would allow anyone entrance. But she recalls that she chose to be a wall. She then remembers meeting Solomon in a vineyard that he had leased out to her brothers. It was there that she fell in love with him, and verses 13 and 14 recall the early days of the courtship and show that the passion of those days is still alive and well. And therefore, whenever he is gone from home, she says, Make haste, my beloved, to come back to me so we can be together. My dear friends, so it is. Solomon's song is a beautiful picture of the covenant of companionship that God designed marriage to be. It exalts the personal characteristics of a man and woman on which marriage is partially based. But this song is also a graphic testimony of God's endorsement of physical love between husband and wife. It is a relationship in which there should be three lasting realities. Total openness, enduring romance, and lasting passion. I hope you as couples read it every once in a while. I close with a story that is told of William Jennings Bryan, the great American lecturer and political leader, lived from 1860 to 1925. He was also a devoted Christian and defender of the faith. He was having his portrait painted, and he was asked by the artist, why do you wear your hair over your ears? Brian responded, well, there's a romance connected to that. 
You see, when I began courting Mrs. Bryan, she objected to the way my ears stood out. So, I grew my hair over to cover them. The artist then asked, well, it's been many, many years since then. Why don't you just cut your hair now? You see there's where this is going? Brian winked and answered, because the romance is still going on. <laughs> Folks, as we prepare ourselves for Paul's instructions to husbands and wives, I pray that each of our marriages will have continued romance. If you've lost it, find it. To the praise of God's glory and for your good and your edification. Thank you, folks. God bless you.